are uh, going to be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13. We'll be there for just a second, and then we're going to go to 2 Samuel 7. Uh, if you want to go ahead and grab your sermon notes, turn there in your Bible, you can do that. Quick announcement about next weekend. I'm excited. Our third annual chili cook-off is next Sunday. Uh, some of you, most of you have been a part of that on some level. Either you've uh, prepared a chili to be a part of the contest, or you've at least showed up as a consumer and eaten the chili that's been prepared. This year, we're going to add another layer to it since uh, uh, you guys have asked about this. Well, what if I don't have a chili recipe, but I make a mad Italian cream cake? So we're doing both the chili contest and the dessert contest this year, adding to it, which I'm a big fan of because I like my chili and I really like my dessert. So uh, that is next Sunday. If you plan on uh, being a, a participant in the contest for the chili cook-off or the dessert cook-off, you need to register it today. Today's the last day to do that. Um, and that is so that we can get set up because we've got to have enough electricity for all the crock pots and then all the tables for the desserts. And so um, if you're planning on participating in the contest, need to know that today. You can do that on our website. Just go to events, chili cook-off and make sure we know you're coming. If you don't plan on participating in the contest, you just need to show up hungry next week. You can do that. Um, but just a little side note, it will be during this service. So next week, we will not do the 1145 service. We're going to pack into two. We'll do our 815 and our 10 o'clock. Um, we'll do kids men in the 10 as normal. Um, but then at 1130, we'll be outside uh, eating chili and dessert and enjoying fellowship. You know, we don't get to do that as a church very often with three services. Um, we don't get to see each other all the time. So this is a great chance really to get together and share a meal together to kind of see the the breadth of who Solid Rock Church is. We're gonna have like uh, bounce houses for the kids, lots of activities. So um, next Sunday, don't show up for 11.45 service, uh, come to the 10 o'clock and then hang around for lunch right after. Uh, so I wanna make sure you knew about that. All right, so we are continuing in our sermon series entitled The People of God. If you haven't been here, it's okay. Uh, just a quick recap, we're walking through the Old Testament looking at the uh, prominent characters of the Old Testament and how their little stories are coming together to tell one bigger story. Last week, we looked at King Saul, how the nation of Israel uh, became discontent with God being their king, and they began to cry out for a human leader. Uh, they were envious of the nations around them who all had men as leaders, and they said, we want one of those. We want a king to sit on our throne, somebody like us, so we can be like everybody else. And so God gave them King Saul. We saw last week how that didn't go very well. That with a human king at the helm, it leads to disappointment, it leads to brokenness, it leads to humility. It doesn't go anywhere good. And so that was King Saul. And so at the end of uh, King Saul's reign, he's in desperation. He's grasping for leverage with the people. He's taking things into his own hands. He's violating God's law. And he's essentially trying to become, taking the place of priest for the nation of Israel. And God said, I don't think so. And so at the end of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 verse 14, this is what we read last week. It's where we left off. This is where we'll start today. God is speaking now to Saul when he says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Saul, you're just about done. I'm about to put the end to your reign and your rule over my people. And then God follows with this. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So not only is Saul about to be out, but God lets him know, I'm going to replace you with the man after my own heart, someone to be a prince for my people. So 
what follows from here now is, and this isn't the, the complete end of Saul's reign. He reigns until he dies. Um, after uh, Saul dies, he, uh, David doesn't immediately become king. It's actually one of Saul's sons who steps in, uh, Ish-bosheth. And I probably didn't say that correctly, but Ish-bosheth steps in as the king over Israel. And, and David is actually the king of Judah um, for about seven years. And so let me kind of talk you through what happened. So um, after this moment where God says, Saul, you're just about done. I'm going to raise somebody up. Um, God is going to send the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse. And he's going to tell Samuel, it's going to actually going to be one of Jesse's sons who's going to replace Saul as king. And I want you to go there and I'll show you which one it is. And we see in this narrative as it unfolds, God's criteria for a king is different from our criteria. See, Saul was picked because he was really tall. He was handsome. He was a man's man. He was popular. It was easy for the people to get on board and say, yeah, we like him as king. We like the way he looks. We'll follow him. But when uh, God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse, uh, Jesse brings in all the older boys who are a lot like Saul, right? They're tall, they're big, they're good looking, they've got it together. And, and Samuel's like, mm, I don't, none of these will do. Do you not have any more sons? I know God sent me here to pick out the next king, but I haven't seen him yet. Jesse's like, well, I got, I got one more. I mean, my youngest, David, but he's out tending the sheep so his brothers could come here. And, and Samuel says, well, hey, go get him. I wanna see him. And so we see as David is brought before Samuel that quickly the Lord affirms, this is the one. And in that moment, Samuel affirms, this is the Lord's anointed. He shall reign after Saul. But at this point, David's just a kid, just a young shepherd, doesn't know, come here from Sikkim and, and, right, and, and Saul's still sitting on the throne. Fast forward, um, things get a little hostile towards the end of Saul's reign and finally he dies. And so again, his throne is passed on uh, to one of his sons and yet David is there kind of in the backdrop, right, as God's actual appointed king. And so uh, for the tribe of Judah and Hebron, they go ahead and they, they select David as their king. And there's a little fracture among the people of Israel for about seven years. And it's not until um, Ish-bosheth is killed that David then steps in as the king over all of Israel. And he ends up reigning 33 years. Early on in David's reign, things go really well. He's a victorious warrior. He leads the people of God into battle, right? And he's a man's man. He's the kind of leader you want to follow. And he brings victory to the nation of Israel. Uh, matter of fact, uh, under David's reign, they actually defeat the Philistines and, and, and capture Jerusalem. And, and David sets up Jerusalem as the capital city. Finally, a capital city, a resting place for God's people. That's not enough. David said, you know what? The presence of God and the, and the ark has been wandering around the wilderness all these years. We need to build a house for God. We need to build this temple. We need to bring the, bar, the, the ark into the city and we need to do this right. And so we see in David's, in David's reign, this, this heart after God, this man who loves God. A matter of fact, when they bring the, the ark into the city of Jerusalem, David becomes this vibrant worshiper. He gets criticized for it, but he is just out there. He's got his outer garments off, right? Not the kind of thing a king would do. And he's just worshiping God as the ark comes into Jerusalem. This is where we find one of Saul's daughters uh, watching from a window and she sees this and she makes this comment, this critical comment about David as she sneered at him down there in the streets worshiping God. She says, you know what? That is so undignified. You're supposed to be a king. My dad would never do what you're doing to which David replies, oh yeah? Well, I'll become even more undignified than this. That's how much I love God. 
And so we see, not only is he this victorious warrior, he's this vibrant worshiper, this man after God's own heart. David ends up writing at least 73 of the Psalms. Um, The New Testament accredits another two to him. So as many as maybe 75 of the Psalms are written by David. Right, and so he has this tremendous upswing as he takes off leading the nation of Israel. The problem is uh, the victory days don't last forever. David and his complacency began to lose sight of his heart for God and he let go of his heart for himself, commits adultery with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant and then to try to cover it up, brings her husband home and tries to cover it up. And when that won't work, sends order to the battlefield to have her husband killed to cover up for his sin. And so what began is this victorious warrior, this vibrant worshiper of God, establishing this holy city for God, right? Begins to take his turn into a really dark place. So what we see is when God is talking to Saul, he said, Saul, hey, your reign's coming to an end, but I'm gonna raise up somebody who is a man after my own heart. What we can't lose sight of is David's still a man, right? Because that was the problem to begin with. Israel didn't want God as king. They wanted a man as king. And even this man after God's own heart doesn't suffice as the king over God's people. So now in 2 Samuel chapter seven, there's this really powerful moment a prophetic moment where God is gonna speak into David's desires, into David's situation, and he's gonna begin to to show what's gonna happen next. This is still early on in David's reign. Now, when we read prophecy, especially from the Old Testament, but uh, it's true of prophecy anywhere in the Bible, oftentimes prophecy will capture imagery um, from real-time events, things going on. So the prophecy is both about what's happening right now and also about what will happen. So you're reading things from the prophets, from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and you're like, hey, that was happening right there, right then for that nation at that time, but it also kind of hints to something that is to come. And that's the way prophecy works. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we see this is true of David. Now, what's happening here is David's still in his upswing of leadership. Things are still going well for him. And he's already brought the ark into Jerusalem and now he wants to build a house for God. And this is where God is gonna speak through Nathan to David. And we pick this up in verse eight. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. So at the beginning of this conversation where God's gonna speak to David, he reminds him of what? David, you didn't choose this position, I chose you, right? And then, and then as he continues to speak, look at what God says in verse nine. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your 
enemies. Now stop right there. I thought David did all that stuff. You see what God is saying? David, you didn't do any of this. There is a king behind you, behind the backdrop, who's making these things happen. I'm the one who did all this. I called you out of the shepherd fields. I went before you. I'm the one establishing a place for for Israel to rest. I'm the one giving peace. And then look at what he says at the end of verse 11. Moreover, so this is God's response to David wanting, David wants to build God a house. Look at what he says. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, What's so powerful about that is, is that what God is saying to David, A, David, this is not about you. B, it's not about what you can do for me because you haven't done anything for me. All that has happened and prospered in your hands is me doing for you and doing for the nation of Israel. So this isn't about you or about what you can do for me. You're a man after my own heart. You want to build a house for me, but that's not what's going to happen. I'm actually going to build a house for you. Now, God's going to begin to explain what he means by that, starting in verse 12. So God goes on, continues, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, that's a really encouraging thing to hear from God. As a dad, I would love to hear God say that. Jason, I'm going to raise up one of your sons after you. It's going to go well. He's going to be a key leader in my kingdom, right? Oh, mission accomplished, right, dads, moms, right? Take what little bit I have to offer and then do something better with the next generation. But God continues and look at what he says. He shall build a house for my name, which that makes sense because if you know the history, David's son Solomon, right, the next king over Israel, he actually builds the temple. So far, so good. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, wait a second, forever. Now it's starting to sound like God is talking about something that's not human, right? Because God can make things prosper, and he can establish kingdoms through man. He's clearly done that, but God's talking about a forever kingdom here. Right? I'm going to establish something, David, through one of your sons that will be forever. And so then God reiterates this and look at verse 14. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now, historically now from this point forward, the nation of Israel consider this to be a prophetic moment. God's beginning to speak of a descendant of David who will come and sit on the throne of the people of God and reign in righteousness and reign forever. And so what happens from here is the nation of Israel, right, begins to interpret this as a prophecy pointing towards a Messiah. Okay, so God's gonna bless the nations, he's gonna rescue the nations, and he's gonna send a better king. 
one of David's descendants to do what David couldn't do. He's gonna build a house for God. He's gonna establish God's kingdom forever. So he's saying to David is, David, this is not about what you can do for me. I know you wanna build me a house, but through you, I'm actually gonna build a dynasty. I'm gonna do more than that. I'm gonna establish my kingdom forever. And so now this begins to point us forward towards what is to come. Now it's interesting how the New Testament authors view David and they view this moment. So David is mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. So we know he was a key figure from the Old Testament that helps us understand who Jesus is. But in a very specific way in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew refers to Jesus 10 times as the son of David. Now that's a really important phrase. Have you ever been reading the gospels and wondered, why is Jesus called the son of David? I thought he was the son of God. Well, that phrase is a link back to 2 Samuel 7. It's the messianic prophecy that God would one day send a better king. And what Matthew is saying is he's here. It's Jesus. He's the son of David. What's interesting is, um, you go to the Gospel of Luke, um, and, and there's a conversation between Mary and the angel. And try to imagine this. You've got this timid, probably teenage girl, young woman, not married, no children, right? And she's in the presence of this angelic being speaking to her about some things, right? And so in Luke 1, listen to this, what the angel says to Mary. I want you to think about Mary's perspective here because I think it's helpful. So Luke 1, so this is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Verse 31, the angel says to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. So far, so good. Okay, so I'm gonna have a kid. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus. Okay, it's not an uncommon name for this day and time. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of who? His father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you feel the magnitude of what that angel just said to poor little Mary? Remember everything God promised through Nathan to David, 2 Samuel 7, that a descendant of David would come and sit on the throne of the people of God forever? God's about to put that king in your womb. What? And so look at how Mary responds in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary is like baffled, not just that God's gonna do it, but she's looking at the here and now, right? She's saying, this doesn't make sense, right? Because for that to happen, this has to happen and that hadn't happened yet. So how's that gonna happen? She's thinking very practically, right? She's doing what a lot of us do in the midst of circumstances like this that are beyond us. We, we look at the here and now and we say, this doesn't make sense, right? But the angel is not looking at it from Mary's perspective, right? She's looking at nine months down the road and this angel is looking at thousand years past, hundreds of thousands of years into the future and saying, Mary, God's about to do something big. Like, and when I use the word big, it couldn't be bigger, The Messiah is gonna be put in your womb. She's like, well, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. So many things happen in our lives that don't make sense to us. But from God's perspective are good and right. 
from something as small as flat tire. Has anybody ever gotten a flat tire because you planned it? Just to show, hey, I'm pretty sure it never is planned, right? It always happens regardless of our plans, right? So everybody's in agreement on that. Has anybody ever gotten a flat tire and went, yes, I have been waiting for this for months, finally a flat tire. Maybe your first one, and then 10 minutes later, you're like, this is horrible. I never want this to happen again. Why? Because flat tires always interrupt our plans because it's never built into the schedule. There's always some place we were on our way to, right, or a place we need to get to, and this is keeping me from accomplishing my plans, my will being done, right? And in that moment, flat tires don't make sense, do they? When you look at it from your schedule and your perspective. But what happens if we take a step back and we say, yeah, God, but what are you doing right now on the side of the road? Are you keeping me from being somewhere I don't need to be? Are you, right, are you leading a stranger to stop by and help me? Like, what are you doing, God, in the big picture? See how we oftentimes have Mary's focus? This does not make sense in the here and now. But what God is showing us through David and again through Mary is like, God has got this amazing narrative unfolding. And you and I are just a small little part in it. And to make sense of the small moments in life, we have to be able to step back and ask the question, God, what are you doing? Now, that doesn't mean that we always like what God is doing. But in faith, we believe that what God is doing is good. You with me on that? I mean, I've never pulled away from a flat tire and went, God, I'm so thankful for that. And I'm just using the small 15 to 20, 30 minute interruption. Now, it get, right from there, we can scale that up to even bigger things but we know that God is doing something bigger than we can see. Now, one of, the, um, one of my favorite places to go in the Bible is the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation can be a little confusing for a couple of reasons. There's a lot of imagery there, but there's also a lot of Old Testament quotes there. So to unpack Revelation, you've got to go back to the Old Testament, kind of unpack what was happening there, and then it gives light to what's happening in Revelation. It's a lot of work to fully understand it. And regardless of the debates on what's gonna happen when, according to Revelation, there is something that is undeniable and that is that Jesus is coming back and he's not coming back as a suffering servant. He's coming back as what? A victorious king. Overwhelmingly, that's the announcement of Revelation. The timetable of how it unfolds is sometimes disputed and this person thinks this is gonna happen first, this is gonna happen first, but unmistakably, the thing that's gonna happen is Christ is coming back. He's not coming back to hang on a cross again, right? He's coming back to be what? The victorious king. I'm gonna, I took a few clips from the book of Revelation. I wanna just read with you here, just a couple of examples. Book of Revelation chapter four is this beautiful imagery of the throne room of God and there are 24 elders bowing down in worship and there are these creatures flying around. It looks like Isaiah chapter six, this throne room vision. All this worship is happening. Bigger than I can even imagine what's taking place here. But there's a problem, there's a dilemma in the scene. And the dilemma is there's a scroll that needs to be unrolled and read aloud, but there's nobody found who is worthy to unroll it. Now there are 24 elders there in this scene and these 24 elders could represent leaders from maybe the, the tribes of Israel, uh, maybe leaders from the modern day church, maybe the apostles and the, 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 uh, the 12 sons um, of Jacob. Like we don't know who they are, but, but for whatever reason, there's 24 elders here and here's the main point. None of those men are worthy to unroll the scroll. Like man's best put forward is not worthy enough to unroll the scroll. And so they begin to weep. We want to know what this girl says. 
but we can't find anybody who can unroll it for us. Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Why? Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a beautiful scene. And there's only one worthy to open the scroll. Who is it? It's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Later on in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign. How long? Forever and ever. You see the connection between what God said in 2 Samuel 7 and what's being proclaimed in Revelation chapter 11? The kingdom of the world has become what? The kingdom of our Lord. And his kingdom is established for how long? Forever and ever. Revelation 22 is is one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. Um, If you haven't read Revelation 22, I encourage you. Um, The whole book is really fantastic, but Revelation 22, verse 16, just just one verse here, and Jesus is standing there. It's his final return, and he's he's entered as the bridegroom, coming for his bride, but he's showing up for his wedding like a warrior dressed for battle. I love this. Beautiful imagery. Look at what he says in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things to the, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's me. Like Jesus is saying, the whole book, it's about me. Yeah, there's a reason why Saul didn't work out. It's not just because he wasn't a man after God's own heart. It's because he was a man. He wasn't fit to be your king. And there's a reason why David didn't work out, even though he was a man after your own heart. Why? Because he was a man, and he is not fit to be your king. And we have the same dilemma that we see in Revelation 5. Then who's worthy? Who's worthy to sit on the throne of our lives and be our king? And the Bible, unmistakably, repeatedly, proclaims to you there is only one who is worthy and that's King Jesus. He has come to be your savior and to be your king. He has conquered death. Now, I was thinking about, I got an email um, Friday. I sent out an email to the church about giving you guys an update of kind of what's happening with construction and, and more than anything, just wanting to just remind us to, continue to pray and to submit all this process and situation to God himself and to trust in his timing and those sorts of things. And I got a reply back uh, from, one of our, from one of our members. I want to read it uh, to you. They feel like it's so fitting. I just really appreciate uh, this person's perspective. So I've sent out this big, long email. Hey guys, here's what's happening. Let's remain steadfast. Let's continue to pray. And then one of our members replies back and says, we represent Christ to all the people that we come in contact with. And that's so good. Every setback is another opportunity to magnify Christ to those around us. Every setback is an opportunity to magnify Christ to those around us, to our community, 
to our city leaders, and to those the Lord will draw to this fellowship of believers. See what he was doing? He's taking a step back, going, let's look at the big picture for a minute. Yeah, it's frustrating, and it's, you're getting tired of waiting, and this setback leads to this setback, and now we got to do this, and we thought this was going to happen a long time ago, and Right, and what a beautiful reminder. This is all in God's timing, and this is not about solid rock. It's not. It's not about you, and it's not about me. It's not about solid rock. It's about what? Take a step back. It's about God's kingdom. It's about what King Jesus is doing here on earth in this community. And his timing is, is either better than ours, or it's not. Right? Which one is it? Is it? It's better. Right? The way he wants to do this is either better than the way we want to do it, or it's not. Which way is it? It's better. He's not come to be our good luck charm, to bless all of our plans and to make all of our dreams come true. He's come to be what? Our king. Well, the king rules, right? The king calls his subjects into submission and leads us to good places. And what a great reminder. We have a king. It's not the president of the United States. It's not the mayor of Fort Worth. It's not the city of Fort Worth. It's not me. It's not you. It's Jesus. He's the only one worthy to unroll the scroll. And he's the only one worthy to sit on the throne of our lives. I was talking with one of our members, just, uh, I don't know, about a month or so ago, um, a gentleman who was diagnosed with cancer and um, it was caught at early stage and he hadn't had the surgery yet, but doctors like, hey, I think I can get all this through surgery. And we we're just talking about that emotional journey and that spiritual journey that you go on when you hear that kind of news and, uh, and, and he just said to me, I went over to his house for lunch. He said, hey, you know what? I don't think this is really about the cancer. I think it's about what God's doing in my life. He wants me to be more bold for the gospel. And I don't know how to do that. Up until this point, I've been really timid. I think that's what this is about. I'm like, wow, take a step back. God, what are you doing? So now I wanna leave you with that question. What is God doing in your life right now? What's, what's the bigger narrative that is unfolding? Maybe you've been like the nation of Israel. You've looked at people around you and you're envious of what they had and in your discontent, you said, I want what they have. And then chasing after it, maybe it's led to destruction or led to chaos. And, and now you're kind of living in the results of that. You're like, oh, now what? I need, a, I need something better. And God says, no, no, no. You don't need something better. You don't need a better version of what you already had. You do need something better, but you're only gonna find that in Jesus himself. Maybe you've kind of reaped the, the harvest of pursuing satisfaction of what man can provide for you. I said this in the last service. There's some young women in our room. There's no man out there who can make you happy and satisfy you. Just ask the older women in the room. Right? The best among us won't do. Right, young men? There's some pretty girls out there, but there's not a girl out there who can actually satisfy you and make you happy. It's a lie. It's a fallacy. Only Jesus can do that. There's some awesome girls out there. Right? There's not another candidate for president who can come in and solve our problems. I'm not saying stick your head in the sand, don't be involved, but that's not where the solution's gonna come from. The question is, who sits on the throne of your heart? That's the question. Who's your king? You, what people think of you, or is it Jesus himself? So I wanna leave you with those questions and invite our prayer partners to come forward. Maybe something going on you'd like to ask somebody to pray with you about. Um,
Come grab one of our prayer partners and just let them pray with you. Um, maybe you're here today and you've never taken that first step of faith to trust in Jesus and, and, and to allow him to be your savior and king. I'm gonna pray you make that decision today. So worship team's coming forward, prayer partner's coming forward. Uh, let's pray together and let's get ready to respond. Um, Father, we thank you that you truly are a worthy king. And God, so many times like the nation of Israel, we become discontent with you being our king and we want, we want somebody else to be our king. We want somebody like us. But God, you've shown us through the story of David that even a man after your own heart won't do. But Father, thank you for that reminder. God, I pray right now for any person here today who has not taken that step of faith to trust in Jesus as savior and king, that they would do that before they leave today. And God, for those of us who are Christians today, that you would remind us of who our king is, that truly, Jesus, you are the only one worthy to sit on the thrones of our hearts to be our king. And so maybe today is a day of calling us back into submission. Holy Spirit, we pray you would move, not just in this time, but in our church life, God, that you would guide us to be the small representation of your kingdom that you desire for us to be. That you would bring your kingdom to this community through us. Oh, Lord Jesus, come be our king. We pray this in your name.